whether you're talking about suffering, trials, unpleasant things in your life, disappointments, letdowns, if you want your soul to stand firm, the only way to do that is to fasten yourself firmly to the unmoving hope in our eternal reward. next fruit that we take a look at is the fruit of a stable soul. The fruit of a stable soul. Now, if the fruit of the joy of the Lord would be the fruit that's most desired, I think we could say that the fruit of a stable soul is probably the fruit that's most lacking today. If we were to look around us at the world in which we live, we would see one thing with great clarity, and that is extreme shifting sands of cultural, what the culture approves of and disapproves of. And then if we looked a little bit further, we would see a great, great many people who would claim the name of Christ, who instead of standing firm as a stable soul would, they instead follow the shifting sands of culture. They may just be slower than the culture, but they follow it. I think that would be preeminent in our culture today, this idea that the stability of soul, particularly when times are difficult, particularly when they're suffering trials, unpleasant things in life, the stability of soul, I think we could say the church in large, and I don't mean the true church, the, the uh, remnant. I, rem- I mean those who would call themselves as part of the church. I think we would see a near total lack of stability of soul. So where does the scriptures say that we get stability of soul from? And as you might guess, the scriptures say stability of soul comes from your hope. Look with me at the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews, the whole point of the entire letter is this. There's this group of believers who are true and genuine believers, but their faith is faltering. They have neglected their faith. And as a result, their faith has become very weak and even fragile, we could say. And so the writer is writing to them for the point, for the purpose of giving to them confidence in the one in whom they've believed. They've believed in Jesus. And the writer wants to bolster their confidence in what they have believed, which is to say, Jesus, their high priest. And so as he's writing to them, picture in your mind, he's writing to a group of Christians who at this point in their life lack stability of soul. Here's what he says to them. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, they're sort of, oh, I guess they're just sort of put off. They feel like God doesn't appreciate them. They feel like they've done this for God and they've done that for God. Even later on in the letter, the writer's going to recognize you've even been in prison for your faith. And so, yeah, they, they have experienced some sufferings, some trials. Maybe some of them have lost some property or some jobs. And they kind of feel like this is just really not working out for our good. God just doesn't recognize this. He doesn't appreciate this. Maybe other believers don't really appreciate this. So they sort of feel overlooked. 
So the writer begins by saying, not to worry. God never overlooks anything, any work of love that you have done in the name of serving the saints. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That's the whole point of the letter. The point of the letter is, I want you, Hebrews, to have the full assurance of hope all the way to the end. So we see here, once again, the theme of patient waiting, of enduring waiting. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, once again, the theme of patience, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. So here we go again, that same sort of theme, expectation, patient waiting, and then there's the inheriting of the promise. Now verse 13. So he wants them to be assured. He wants to bolster their confidence. He wants them to be reinvigorated in their earnest, confident assurance of the reward that's theirs. And here's the reason he's going to give them. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he really had no one greater to whom, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is, is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement. So here's what he just said right there. I want you Hebrews to be assured of the promise that you will obtain. In chapter 11, he's going to talk about those who were waiting for the promise and they didn't obtain it in their life. He's going to give all these examples of, the, of those who waited to obtain. Here he gives the example of Abraham, how Abraham patiently waited to obtain the promise, speaking there of the promise of the child Isaac. So he says, I want you to have this confidence in what you have believed and what you are waiting on. And so he gives them the assurance of who gave them the promise. God gave them this promise, and then he goes through this example. He's in, in his, it's almost like he imagines in his mind Abraham, who's received this promise from God for the, for the promised child Isaac. But yet they're getting old. Isaac's 99. The child's not here and all this. And so he kind of imagines, or actually he probably doesn't imagine because I think Genesis 15 shows us this, but, but he sort of pictures in his mind Abraham sort of running out of patience sort of beginning to lose confidence in what God has told him. And then, remember how that story goes? God says, go and look at the stars and look at the sand and the sea. And, and, and so then God swears by himself. And his point is, God gave word to Abraham and swore by the highest thing he could, which is himself. And he cannot lie. He gave Abraham this assurance and Abraham believed in that. And as we know, Genesis 15 tells us, God counted that to him as righteousness. He wants that type of assurance to come to them. So he's making a comparison from the, from the promise that Abraham received to the promise that they have received. And he's saying both of these promises are from the same promise giver. And the same promise giver has taken an oath by himself that this is your inheritance. This is your reward. Now, we get, to the, we get to the point that we've been driving to. So, verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to do what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. He wants them to hold fast to the hope that's set before them. How does he know that they're not holding fast to the hope that's set before them? How does he know that they're not? He knows that they're not because they have no stability of soul. That's what he's been talking about through the whole letter is that they have no stability of soul. They're over here. They're over there. They're hot. They're cold. They're lukewarm. They're back and forth. They have no stability of soul. And so that tells the writer to the Hebrews that they are not holding fast to the promise. Because holding fast to the promise, in the writer's mind, equals stability of soul. Now look at what he says in verse 19. Here's where it all comes together for us. We have this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What do we have? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. There he's talking about Jesus, the imagery of the tabernacle. Remember the Holy of Holies, only the priest could enter through the curtain. But his point here is that Jesus is our high priest. He has entered in through the curtain. He's the hope that we have. But look at what he says, how he puts it. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That is, I believe, some of the most beautiful imagery that the New Testament has for us. The imagery of our hope as being an anchor for our soul. What does an anchor do? We don't have to be a sailor to know what an anchor does. An anchor is something that's fastened to a ship, attached firmly to a ship, And the ship, the people on the ship can take that and cast it outside the ship. And then that anchor goes down to something firm and unmoving in order to keep them unmoving. Because that ship is resting on something that has no solid base to it at all. The water just, there is no, no, nothing constant about it. It just moves. And the ship is on this moving water. And the only way a ship on water that shifts and moves, the only way that ship can be still is if it takes something firmly anchored to itself and throws it outside of itself so that it goes down to that which doesn't move, the seabed, and firmly anchors itself there. And that's what keeps the ship steady and unmoving on waters that are moving. Isn't that the most beautiful imagery of our hope? It's something outside of us that's firmly attached to us, but it's outside of us. And we cast it upon that which doesn't move, the seabed of Jesus Christ, the seabed of His promise of our inheritance. And being firmly rooted in that unmoving seabed, it keeps us from swaying in the currents and the waters that go here and there and everywhere and everywhere else. That is what is so sorely lacking 
in our culture today, that's what's so sorely lacking in the modern day church is this firmness of soul that comes from this anchor that's outside of ourselves. You know, that's what our modern world for generations now, we have been taught that if you want to be stable, you need to find it within yourself. You need to find something within you. You need to discover yourself. You need to discover who you are. And that's where you have stability. We live in a generation that's living proof in vivid color that there is no stability to be found inside you. There is only stability in something outside of you that we must be firmly attached to and the anchor of our soul must be grounded in that. For generations, the modern church, and again, I don't mean the true church of God, I don't mean the remnant of God's people, I mean the larger body of people that would call themselves by the, by the word, the name Protestant Christian. We have gone right along with all of the shifting fads of culture. Again, we were just slower, but we followed all of them. Every single one. Why? Because we weren't attached to that which doesn't move. We weren't attached to our hope. We weren't attached to the, the truth of that inheritance. That is how we firmly ground ourselves. Now, this shifting water, we can think of that as, as the shifting water of culture, or you can think of it as the shifting water of your, the circumstances of your life. It works exactly the same both ways. Whether you're talking about suffering, trials, unpleasant things in your life, disappointments, letdowns, whatever you may be talking about, if you want your soul to stand firm and not be just swept along with whatever is around you, the only way to do that is to fasten yourself firmly to the unmoving hope that is our confident assurance in our eternal reward. If you find yourself struggling in that area, this is where to focus your thoughts. On your reward. On that reward that doesn't change. That is what produces steadfastness or stability of soul. Look at Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You see the connection? There is a steadfast focus on the Lord and the truth of His promises. And then there is an unshakability of life. 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How, Paul? Knowing, again, hope has to do with cognitive perception. Knowing, knowing what? That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me put that another way. Knowing that God is a rewarder of His people. That God has a reward laid up for His people. That God has the blessings of the eternal enjoyment of completed salvation set aside for His people. Paul says, by knowing that, you can be stable, steadfast, unmoving. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace. Does that sound like stability of soul? 
You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That sounds like stability of soul. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who, who promised is faithful. You see the connection? There's a God who has promised. He's promised inheritance. He's promised eternal reward. And He's faithful. Therefore, we can be steadfast in our confident assurance of that. Just a couple of chapters later, chapter 11, here's what the writer to the Hebrews is going to say. This is not in your notes, but here's what he's going to say. We all know this passage. Faith is the conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. For without faith it is impossible to please God. Why? Because he who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and reward those who seek him. You see how the writer grounded into the very concept of saving faith the requirement that we recognize that God is a rewarder of his people and that he has laid up reward and that reward can be counted on. And from that springs forth this, as the writer says, faith that can please God. 